Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Benjamin Wood, who is the CEO of Hint, a software development consultancy based in Vancouver, Washington, in the United States. Benjamin Wood, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to chat with you today. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, Maintainable software code? Ah, uh, yes. The classic question. You know, I think test coverage is probably in the top position for me. If you have decent test coverage, and I, and I would define decent test coverage as like 90% plus in lines of code, which in my experience, a lot of applications don't have, and it's it's hard to maintain that kind of coverage. Of course, lines of code coverage is not really that useful of a metric because it doesn't really tell you like what kind of risks you have, but it is the only metric that we have that anybody can record, right? So, you know, if you've got good test coverage, if you have a test suite that runs relatively quickly, and you can you can run it on CI in you know ten minutes or less, then you've got a lot going for you in terms of of being able to maintain, make changes, and um, move things forward without constant fear of breaking stuff. So yeah, test test coverage is really important. Like I, I mentioned making iterations already, but that that is a key thing for me. I think uh, in in test coverage and every other area of maintaining software is the ability to iterate uh, to iterate. So that. Includes having, um, you know, either a good staging environment that you can put things up on or having the ability to spin up an environment for a specific feature or bug fix or something and, and get that validated and rolled out to production quickly. The ability to, to deploy um, your application quickly uh, and in a uniform fashion, you know, hopefully nobody's, um, nobody's uh, you know, SSHing into a server and um, pulling new code <laughs> with Git or something. And I say that, and yet uh, we, we just had a client recently uh, that we started with at my company. And, and that was exactly the deployment process. So it was like one of the first things we had to, <laughs> had to fix. We'll talk about that project more, I'm sure, as our, our latest uh, and probably most interesting Rails Rescue project. Yeah, other things, you know, um, assuming we're talking about a Rails application, like following Rails conventions is so important. Ruby and Rails are kind of at odds sometimes, you know, because Ruby lets you do whatever the heck you want. And Rails conventions, like like common Rails wisdom, is follow the conventions. So so you have the ability to do whatever you want and change behaviors and, and do things differently than you're supposed to. And yet, you know, you're supposed to not do that. <laughs> so, yeah, li- limiting monkey patches, um, following Rails conventions wherever possible, uh, you know, keeping up with things like deprecation warnings, you know, if, if an application is riddled with deprecation warnings, that's a pretty good indicator that things aren't going to be terribly maintainable because nobody's paying attention, you know? Um, so you got to tend to that kind of stuff. Um, of course, keeping your dependencies up to date is important. Um, upgrading rails itself and, and therefore all the rest of your, your gems that you're using moving those things for that's important for a number of the reasons. Of course, the number one, uh, reason I think for most businesses is, is uh, security. You know, you got to stay within uh, official Rails security support, backport security fixes yourself. But I mean, there's very few people that are actually doing that. Some people say they are, and sometimes they've backported a security fix, but it's like lots of holes, <laughs> lots of lots of things they haven't backported. You know. 
So a couple of things, like, and just to kind of be helpful to explain, because I know what monkey patching is, but I don't know that everybody listening might not be familiar with that. What is, what is, what is monkey patch, patching? I, I suppose different people might define monkey patching different ways, but, but basically monkey patching is getting into a piece of code, usually one that you didn't write. So it's not your own application code. So it's like framework code or a library that you're using and changing its behavior in some way. And the trouble with doing that is that if you want to upgrade that dependency, chances are the tweaks and changes that you've made will break. So the dependency gets moved forward, but your monkey patch doesn't unless you actually change it. Um, so for example, say you uh, were just overriding a method, which not all program, programming languages um, will let you do that as easily as Ruby will. But in Ruby, there's many different ways to overwrite uh, a method you know, somewhere in one of your dependencies. You might, you might have gone and copied the source code originally from a, a dependency, and that was your base, and then you made a few tweaks to it, and it worked for whatever your use case was, and you said, great, like I'm moving on. And the next thing you know, that piece of code is ancient, nobody knows what it does or why you made the change, and they want to upgrade that dependency, and they can't because the code breaks, um, and they have to try to unwrap, you know, unravel that. So that's a monkey patch. Um, you could monkey patch your own code, I suppose. You know, some, some people might find themselves in the situation where there's a piece of their application code that they don't want to change because most of the application uses a specific way, but there might be a specific context in which you need to kind of change its behavior. And again, depending on the programming language you're working with, you might have the ability to do that kind of at runtime or conditionally. And that too is kind of not really a great idea because same reason you go and you change the source without realizing that there's something that's kind of dependent on the way it was written originally. I know, yeah, as you mentioned, Ruby has a number of ways that different do, to do that. And like a common way that we would, a reason why we would do that early on is like, oh, we want to make a slight change to one of like the the main libraries that comes with Ruby on Rails. And like, okay, maybe we want to change this uh, active record method to do something. Or, or we, we know, I'm trying to think of a really good use case for this now because I, I don't know I would be such a proponent of it anymore. But we used to do this stuff all the time. And so we would create a file. You would open it up and kind of like inject some stuff in there or maybe add a couple new methods to something. That uh, that was another way to do that. So yeah, the, like I, I could give a couple of examples of of you know bad bad reasons to uh, to monkey patch and and maybe good reasons. A, a good a good reason to monkey patch would be that you need to do something for a short period of time where you're transitioning some piece of code. Um, if you're writing a monkey patch that you have the intention and follow through to actually remove in a week or two weeks or some short period of time. Uh, and follow through is important because everybody can have good intentions to remove something and, and then it never happens. So you really have to be sure that you're going to follow up on that. Then, then that might be okay. And the reason you might write a monkey patch like that, um, as an example, let's say you're upgrading an application. And let's see, in, in order to do the upgrade in a way that you're not dealing with tons of merge conflicts, you want to make changes to your master branch or your main branch frequently and get those changes in, um, you know, sooner rather than later versus like working on a long running branch. Um, so you want to you want to make changes that are required for upgrading that application, like the dependencies. But but you don't want to have those changes locked up in a long running branch where you're constantly, you know, dealing with merge conflicts. Right. So one way that you could avoid that is maybe make a monkey patch that allows you to do something that you're going to be doing in the future and you need to do for your upgraded dependencies, but allows you to do it against your current set of dependencies. 
let's also talk about maybe a bad reason to monkey patch. Uh, this, this is an example from a recent project that I was working on. In a previous dependency upgrade, something went terribly wrong with some application code. Uh, in, in this particular case, it was a Rails application. Some Rails behavior changed around finding a first record in Active Record where an order statement was actually defined in SQL where before it was not. Uh, I think it was all the way up until somewhere in the Rails 4 series that if you tried to get the first record, there was actually no order defined in the SQL statement. Um, and so it was just whatever order the database gave back to you, which is like, you know, could change depending on if you were doing a join or other various things in, in your query. Um, so that was kind of non-deterministic, right? So it's good that, that Rails added an order statement. Um, but in this particular application, it brought the site down essentially, because some of their queries went from milliseconds, you know, a healthy millisecond type query to a single query running for over a minute. And and so as as a quick fix, uh, they overwrote the first method in in active record. So, you know, basically just getting back to the previous behavior where there was no order. Maybe that's okay to get things fixed and and back up and running in production. You know, you got to do what you got to do. But it's been there for years now, right? And it's continued to cause problems. And, and of course, the monkey patch wasn't exactly what it needed to be, like it worked in most cases, but it's caused problems since. Um, so that's 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 an example of, of a kind of monkey patch you might find in an application. You just go, oh no, what is this doing here? Like, this this is bad. It doesn't belong. Not very maintainable. <laughs> you know, and another thing you had touched on is the, you know, how quickly your, you know, your, your test suite builds in, What's been your take on, you know, you said it'd be ideally under 10 minutes and I've heard people talk about a couple minutes of being an ideal and it's like, well, it depends on, I think, the the platforms and like the tooling and like what types of tests can run quickly or not because I think when we get more into the uh, like automating browser type tests, on the, you know, that that definitely is, I think, ends up being a, pretty, a place where things quickly start to grind to a halt on your laptops or your CI servers and stuff like that. What has been your take on where people should best be focusing their test coverage time on? Where do you see the most bang for your buck, I suppose? And I was going to touch on this a little bit later, but in terms of, it feels like kind of like a hybrid question a little bit, but around for those that are coming to you and they don't have a lot of test coverage and they're like, where do we start? Well, how do you say that? And then also, how do you keep it uh, under a relative speedy response and feedback cycle? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, I had mentioned earlier a, a recent Rails upgrade, uh, not upgrade, sorry, Rails rescue project that we took on came to us with no test coverage at all. Actually, there was a, a test directory in, in the code base that I don't think had been run for many years. And it was like somebody had tried to to start a test suite um, and never really got around to to finishing it. And so it had languished. So no, no, no effective test coverage one of the first things that we were going to do with the application was upgrade its dependencies because it was out of date, out of security support, et cetera. And, and that was a big risk. And, and so we added test coverage. It's something that we always do before we take on a project like that. Like we, we just, we can't really operate at the level that we want to without having test coverage. And I, I had said earlier, 90% is great. And I think that's true. That should be your ultimate goal, um, 90% plus lines of code test coverage. But if you have no test coverage, a good 
uh, goal, I think, is maybe somewhere around 70%. If you have less than 70%, you're going to do something as substantial as upgrade underlying dependencies or make major application changes that could affect any part of the code base. Like, you just have to fill in the blanks with a lot of QA, and that's difficult and slows the iterations and, and feedback cycle, right? So best bang for the buck, the way we approached this upgrade was with browser tests. One of the reasons that I like browser tests for the scenario where an application has no test coverage and a new team, a new development team is taking it on, um, or maybe you're a, you know, a, a freelancer out there and you're taking on an application from somebody else, is that you don't really have to have a deep understanding of the code base to write the tests. Getting in and testing somebody else's code, especially if it's legacy code or maybe not terribly well-written or there's monkey patches and stuff, can actually be quite a challenging task. Like, it'd probably be easier to fix the code and then test it <laughs> if you could do that. But the thing is, is chances are you'd break it because you don't have tests to prove that you, you know, that you fixed it right, right? So browser tests are nice because you can, you can get a user's understanding of the system and you can, t- you can test it you know, behaviorally. The other nice thing is that it's testing the whole system, including JavaScript, which is important. Uh, and, and then, yeah, you know, routing and uh, maybe, you know, in the case of a Rails application, at least middleware, all the way down your controllers and views and stuff. So it's very broad. There are downsides, of course. The down, the, perhaps the biggest downside is one that you mentioned is, is that it takes a long time to run these tests. So they're the slowest of all tests, certainly. Um, another downside is that you're testing things behaviorally at a user's level. So if something, uh, if one of your tests breaks, you're scratching your head at why did this break? Uh, it's easy if you have an error, right? If you get if if, if a test fails because of an exception, then you kind of have a place to go. But if a test sit, uh, if a test fails because of a failed assertion, like expected to have something on the page but it wasn't there, which is often the kind of assertion that you might write in a browser test, um, it's like, well, why wasn't that there? I don't know. It could be any reason, or or worse, you know, like imagine you're testing a, a checkout procedure or something like that, you get to the checkout page and the total is wrong. It's like, well, shoot, you know, that could be anywhere in the, in the application stack. So yeah, I think best bang for the buck still though is, is these browser, browser tests. Um, next, I would, I would go a level down from that and do, you know, request specs or some people might write controller uh, tests. Um, I like requests, again, I'm talking primarily from experience in Rails here. I like request specs over controller uh, specs uh, you hear me mentioning specs too, so I, I most commonly write RSpec. Request specs are good because they test the routing in the middleware. It tests effectively everything that a browser test does only without the browser. You're, you're test, testing things at the request level. Um, so I like, I like those. They're pretty easy to write. And then over time, the, the, the best thing that you could do is just work on unit tests. You know, Once you've got a line of code coverage up there with some browser tests, maybe some request tests, um, writing unit tests at a very low level for every part of your application is what will really allow you to move fast and maintain the software because when you have a failed browser test, chances are you're also going to have a, a failed unit test that tells you exactly what the problem is. And that is really valuable. Like It's such a relief when I see a unit test fail and a browser test fail because I'm like, oh, good, this isn't going to be an all-day debugging journey. Um, I know right where to go. You know, I know that you're... You mentioned that you do like rescue projects and upgrade type projects over at Hint, and I want to dig into that into that type of work in a moment as well. But do you often find yourself using the metaphor technical debt in day to day work? How do you define that at the moment? 
I think technical debt is something that somebody in the past did knowing that it was wrong and that someday that they would get around to fixing it or that somebody would. <laughs> so it's a very broad um, answer. But I think that's that's how technical debt comes on, at least. is It's typically not something somebody does um, unknowingly, though that happens too. It, it could be maybe the application was developed by early career developers, which may have been yourself. <laughs> you know, I've had plenty of times where I've come back to an application I worked on some, you know, time ago and thought, oh my goodness, who wrote this? And I find my own name in the diff. So, so I, I suppose like it could, it could come from inexperience. Sometimes technical debt, debt builds up, but, but even then a lot of times I think folks know that they're doing something that might not be quite right, but maybe they don't know how to handle it right at the time, or they feel like they don't have the time to handle it. That's often the case. You know, if you have a large application, well, really, if you have any size application with no test coverage, that's technical debt. Somebody was writing, writing code and, and not considering future them or the future developers that would be working on it. And yeah, so, so we use the term technical debt a lot. Um, we use the terminology pay down technical debt. So whenever you're fixing something or dealing with a problem, then you're paying down that debt. And, uh, you know, the goal uh, in life and in applications is to be debt free. Do you think that's an attainable point? In, is there is, mm-hmm. is, is that actually no. attainable? <laughs> in life or in, in application? Uh, in, in software. In, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in life, yes, uh, I think it is. Uh, in software, I don't think so. I, I think I think that you're always no matter how much technical debt you have, there's always something that you can improve and something that you can consider technical debt. Yeah. So over the years, you know, thinking about technical debt and how you, has your opinion of what technical debt is or isn't changed and or have you, how do you see other, say, developers, whether they're on your team or people you work with or just people in the community maybe often get wrong about technical debt? You feel like it's mislabeled sometimes for something else. I think that's that's possible. I, I think my my position on it has probably changed over time. There was a point in my career as a developer that tests weren't as important to me as they are now, and I, you know, surely wrote plenty of code that I didn't test in my past, and probably still do. <laughs> but if I, if I do that, I'm I'm still thinking like, oh man, I'm going to have to get around to writing some tests for this code. Because I feel bad, like it, it, it's looming over my head if, if I ship it, um, which we have review process and stuff. Usually our, our team will reject code that doesn't have test coverage. I'm not sure. Uh, outside of that, like how, how my view on, on technical debt has changed over time, I'm, I'm sure that it has. Um, you, you learn to detect stuff when you see it, I think. You know, like you, you might not know uh, earlier in your career when you look at a piece of code that, like, that it's bad code and what its problems are and, and how you could make it better. But as you gain experience, you um, you can you can assess code and think, hey, I I know how I can improve this, and I know how this might break. What what changes you might make elsewhere in the application that that this is going to fail? We'll be back with our interview with Benjamin in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you. Yes, you. You know who you are. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link on social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you kids are hanging out these days. And or write a review on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to me. 
Do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now, let's get back to our interview with Benjamin Wood. So given that you also run a software consultancy, I would love to kind of focus on a topic for a little bit about something that's near and dear to me, which is being a good guest in another team's code base. And so I know that you're off, you know, maybe as a quick little intro ahead of that, uh, can you kind of give us a quick little overview of what Hint offers and what types of work you specifically focus on? Yeah, absolutely. So my company is Hint, our our website is hint.io, and we're a software consultancy that focuses on no particular niche in in terms of industry. Um, but we definitely specialize in Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Um, we supplement with with React on the front end where needed. But but yeah, Rails is kind of our, our main tool. We do a lot of rescue type work. We do a lot of uh, upgrades. And our team is small. We're less than 10 people. Um, I've got a couple of partners as well um, in the business, so I'm, I'm, I'm not alone. And... Yeah, uh, to, to get into your question about being a good guest in somebody's code base, I think the number one rule for, for us and being a good guest is to make people feel good that you're working with, you know? Um, and sometimes that's a conscious effort because you're looking at, at code and problems and, and you want to be saying, like, who did this, you know? <laughs> and, and why would anyone do this? The, those sorts of things. And, and that's just rude, you know? Because we all have code that is making somebody at any point in time <laughs> pull out their hair and go, why, why did they do this? You know, it's so, so it's so easy to judge, you know. Um, so, so being a guest in somebody else's code base, especially if, if you're working in a code base where there are actively other developers, you know, maintaining and, and building features and stuff, is maybe sometimes to not speak your mind, you know, to keep some things to yourself, to find ways to compliment people and compliment the good aspects because any application just about no matter (laughs) i do say just about just about no matter how bad it is (laughs) um there's something commendable i find often there's there's times where i see some some piece of code that i'm like oh my gosh this is just the worst because it's incredibly clever you know very very complex and it's very you know very difficult to to understand but even in that, there's something that's like, well, somebody thought about this, you know, like it is incredibly clever. Like, I, I don't think it belongs, but but somebody certainly had good, you know, logical thought process about how to accomplish this thing. So, yeah. So so being respectful to those that you're working with is, is important. Let's see. Outside of that, um, don't uh, don't go making code linting changes all over the place. You know, if you got a tool like RuboCop or or something, uh, you know, in Ruby or other languages that make auto corrections, um, turn that off in, in your automatic, you know, file save or something like that. Like if you're in your own code base and you've pretty strictly adhered to a certain set of standards, then that's fine because you save a file and it fixes maybe a, a few linting issues around code that you changed. But if you go into somebody else's code base and they don't are, and they're not already using those tools, then when you save your files, it changes all sorts of things and you're making PRs and, and they're having a hard time figuring out what it is that you actually changed because there's all this non-essential um, you know, stuff littered all over the place. Now, you certainly can uh, talk and say, hey, like, can we agree up upon some conventions here that we're all going to follow and 
some people like to do a big bang, you know, let's fix the entire code base in one giant uh, PR. Some people like to make the changes as they go file by file. Um, I think it's just a discussion you have to have with the team. Yeah, uh, we've been talking about test coverage a lot, writing, writing tests for the code that you write. That's also a very commendable and respectful thing to do. Don't, don't write code that will become somebody else's problem to try to figure out how it behaves or um, how to change it without breaking it. If you write tests for it, then you're saying this is how it's supposed to work. And, uh, and it also enables people to make changes without breaking um, its contracts. Um, that makes sense. I'm thinking about the scenario, you know, you brought up a couple of good examples of things maybe to avoid doing without, you know, obviously without having some conversations first. How do you go about, you know, on a, you know, so that's some technical things or things, have you found some good strategies on how to, you mentioned, uh, like it can be really good to compliment the other people that you're working with. Um, you found some like effective strategies on how to like instill that, those kind of ideas in your team early on in the relationship. So you can kind of build a good cohesive trusting relationship because, I also know what it's like to go into an environment where maybe that team of people that you're going to be working with, they might not be super excited about the fact that there's going to be some new people working on the project. Sometimes they're like, yes, we need help. Here's a, you know, and they, they might recommend like a company like you or, you know, my company to come in and help out. And they, we know we're wanted in those, but there are plenty of scenarios where it's like some other stakeholder is like, okay, things are getting done. We this, we're not capable of doing this ourselves right now for whatever reason. We're just, we don't have enough capacity we're nervous about doing this upgrade, what have you, all these different types of scenarios that pop up. And so we, we've realized that over the years that sometimes those developers are nervous about like the unknown, like how, how this thing is going to pan out. Like they don't, they don't know exactly what to expect. So how do you help smooth that out so that you're not seen as a threat to another team? Those are really great questions. I think, I think the biggest one is to exercise humility. You know, don't, don't flex your uh, your your rock star um, code code muscles, you know. But aren't you being hired as the expert? <laughs> and that's what my my next part is: stay in your lane. <laughs> you know, if you're if you are being hired to do to do something, you you want to stay in your lane at least until you've built up enough relationship and rapport with other people to start making comments that are kind of outside of the thing that you were brought in to do. And that's sometimes that's hard because you see places. You, you see things falling down. You see places that you can improve, and you have to resist the urge to do that. You know, it's it is the best thing for the code base to fix that stuff, but it's not necessarily the best thing for the team, and therefore not necessarily the best thing for the business. Um, so sometimes you have to let things go for a period of time. Um, yeah, you know, highlight your your own missteps and failures. Um, never refer to to other team member. Or never refer to you know a failure or a problem or a piece of code directly associated with an individual that may have written it or caused a problem. You know, you use, use terms like we a lot. I do that a lot. I'm always talking about we, we, we broke something. And the person that broke it typically knows that they broke it. They don't need somebody else beating, beating them over the head with it, you know? So like, so be willing to take responsive, some responsibility um, or, or the possibility that somebody might misunderstand what you're saying and think that you were somehow responsible for it. By saying, hey, you know, we succeed as a team and, and we fail as a team. Even as a consultant, I think that these are things that apply. Um, they certainly apply in, inside of a, a team, that we succeed as a team or fail as a team. And, uh, and then as, a, as a consultant, you should approach it that way too, I think. Uh, how, do you, how, do, how do you think this changes, like, 
your recruitment process for your own team of developers, given that they're going to be working most likely on other teams and other unknown to be determined clients, technical projects and, and software code. What do you look for in sort of traits there that you think maybe a company, someone that may be working at a product company may not be thinking about knowing that they'll be, they will be guests and they will be providing consultation and providing advice and expertise. What do you seek out in them that might be a little bit different than a normal product company? Cause that, yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. Diving into somebody else's code base and, and not just once, but doing that frequently, you know, as a consultant does and, and changing context and stuff is a real challenge for sure. And and you're right, you can't just take anybody and throw them into that and expect them to be successful. Um, there are people that are maybe naturally more disposed to doing that sort of work. There's, of course, people that have had experience doing it already. As far as our own, uh, you know, what, what we look for and our hiring practices and stuff, we're certainly looking for a, a certain level of, of technical ability. That's important. I think um, there are a lot of very good developers out there that have had a lot of experience in just maybe one or two applications. And I think maybe that's harkening back to the product world. Like there's some people that have been working at the same company um, for, you know, five, ten years or something. And that's a long time in the, in the software world. So very experienced, but maybe haven't seen a lot of what's out there. So we do like to look for people that have seen a lot, um, people that have moved around more frequently or people that have done consulting in some form or fashion in the past, maybe even freelance. Let's see. Uh, we're looking for people that are really good communicators because that's important. You know, most, most people, not everybody, but most people I think are pretty well intentioned. Sometimes that's hard to communicate when your primary way of, of doing that is through PR reviews and on Slack and stuff. You don't have face-to-face -face interaction often, especially in today's world. <laughs> and and so you, so we're looking for people that can, can communicate really well in, in written format and express not just the information, but a tone with it that is, that is kind and that leads people to, you know, inspiration and action to, to do things uh, differently or to accept um, an idea maybe that is not their own or is different than, than something they've been doing. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. Sometimes I've always, I've ruminated on the idea of like, you know, I've never worked at a product company per se. And so I don't know what that world's like. And I've been doing, running an agency for such a long time and I know you have as well. And so it's like, I'm in this bubble and I'm like, I don't understand the product world. And I think that the product people don't quite understand our world. So one thing that I always, I'm always curious about is when people are like, how would you describe the differences to someone like a, like a junior developer? If they're kind of like, maybe someone listening right now is thinking, maybe they're working at a product company or consulting, but they're not really sure if it's the right track for them, how would, and they maybe haven't really thought about it, but what would you kind of say to that? 
I, I have a particular bent and, and it's biased. You know, I'm, I'm much like you. Um, I, I have never worked uh, for a product company, not as a consultant. <laughs> you know, I've worked for plenty of product companies and you have too as a consultant um, and, and have even started some of them, right? Like there's the occasional greenfield project that comes along. You get to build something brand new and, and work for a while and usually transition to a, a internal team or something or maybe even help with the hiring process, right? Um, so there's that. My personal take, um, and again, it's it's heavily based on my experience, uh, but I, I do think I have some good reasoning to back it up, is that doing consulting work will level you up a lot faster than working in a product company, as you said, like commonly getting siloed in one particular area of the app where you do have the opportunity to go very deep on something. There's, there's like maybe one area of responsibility that you get to go very, very deep on. And that's cool in its own right. And there's value in that. Um, but, the, but, but the main reason I think that, that it's worthwhile to consider doing some sort of consulting work where you get to see a lot of different things um, is imposter syndrome, which is a real problem uh, in our industry. I think when you have the opportunity to see a lot of different code bases and become familiar with the problems and see the patterns across them, there's no code base that you go into and, and think, oh, no, I, I don't know what's going on here. Like, I've never seen anything like this, um, which, which I imagine is one of the prime opportunities for imposter syndrome. It can happen in all sorts of ways, I guess. But, you know, one certainly is you, you're getting a new job and you're really nervous about what you might find because you just haven't had the opportunity to see a lot of variety. So yeah, you know, once once you've done consulting for a period of time, you've seen enough, you kind of feel like you've seen it all. And then once you reach that point, imposter syndrome is, it doesn't go away. I don't think it ever goes away for anybody, but it, it's definitely minimized. On the other side of the coin, if, if you're working in product work and um, you get a job as a junior developer and you work in one place and you specialize on one very narrow thing for three years, it's not that you haven't been gaining experience. Like you have been gaining experience, you've been learning something, but you've been learning one thing in, to a very deep degree. And so there's this whole other world of other stuff out there that you don't know about. And so that's constantly looming over you. He's like, but what about all that stuff that I don't know that I've never seen? So I love the idea of getting broad experience. And then later in your career, maybe choosing to go really deep on something when you feel like not you've seen it all because it's, it's not, it's probably, you know, it's not really possible to see it all. But when you get to the point, you're like, I've, I've seen enough that not a whole lot surprises me anymore. And what I really want to do now is I want to go really deep on a problem. Everybody chooses their own path. You know, that's just, that's, that's my two cents heavily, heavily influenced by my own experience. Yeah. I, I know that I'm very biased on that as well. And, but I also know it's going to be really challenging for junior developers to find their way in the consulting world early on as well, where it's not like, you know, when we bring on projects or when clients come to us with a, you know, a set of challenges, they may need a diverse level of, number of different people that can work on the project, but there are times when we're like, well, we actually haven't really worked on the code long enough to even really understand how this all works. So you're going to have to figure a little bit out on your own, or we can, you know, sit down and try to figure this out together to some degree. That can be a little bit of a challenge too. You know, we have, we have people now that we hired originally as a junior developer that are now senior developers and leading projects and have been for a long time. And we've had junior people come in and been like, after a year being like, this is really difficult and, and there's this allure of like, I'll have 
maybe I'll, I'll find my place in a product company because then I can focus on maybe this one area and for a while and then maybe move over to a different area. And so I get that it's not one size fits all by any means. And so it, that's a good point that you bring up. It's it's definitely not easier as an early career developer to to be a consultant. Like it's it's much more stressful, I think. I don't know. I don't have the, the experience, the personal experience to say, but I imagine it is because you are going from code base to code base with different people all the time. And um, I'm I'm sure that there is going to be a period where imposter syndrome and things of that nature are are very strong because you're constantly feeling like you're getting the rug pulled out from underneath you just when you start to wrap your head around a particular project, you're starting work on a new one. So it's it's very hard up front. But I, I think the reward is there if you can if you can stick with it. And it takes, you know, it takes a lot of investment to do that. It's not the easy path. I think I think you're probably kind of working double time as a as an early career developer if you're doing consulting type work because because yeah, you're being hired as a consultant, right? As and as an expert that's supposed to get in there and know what they're doing, whether you're freelancing or if you're working for a consultancy of some sort. Um, there's an expectation that you know what you're doing. And if you don't, then <laughs> then you're probably putting an extra time to, to figure it out and still be able to, to deliver something. I'm not a big fan of, of overworking or, you know, having your, your whole life be wrapped up in the work that you do. Um, so that that's hard. And, and each person has their own boundaries that they need to um, maintain. It depends on what your life is, too. You know, if, if you're young and you don't have a family yet, maybe you got the time, like, Sure, go for it. Spend a couple of years just, you know, working your butt off to to get to where you want to be. If if you're at a different place in life, that's maybe not a good idea. Like if you got other responsibilities, you can't you can't just bury yourself in work. Like maybe maybe those are reasons you might go for product work, right? Um, something that's more comfortable that you can just kind of dig into something deep and and work with one team, etc. Couple of quick last questions for you, Benjamin. One, uh, I know that you and your team, as you're taking over projects, uh, are often needing to quickly spin those applications up, you know, on your local environment. Uh, have you come up with some good patterns for how to do that? Yeah, we a few years ago switched to doing all of our development uh, inside of Docker, which is um, a debated subject, I suppose, amongst the community, but really nice for us as consultants because we can have environments for different clients all um, separate. And, uh, you know, it's easy to bring up one project and switch between them. Um, one of the key things that we do that makes that really doable for us is that most of our team is using VS Code. And um, Microsoft has an extension called uh, Remote Development Containers. And there's also Remote Development uh, SSH and WSL. Um, but with containers, you can actually run VS Code inside of a Docker container. So you can use all of your normal um, extensions and tooling and everything. Um, you could even run a Docker environment on a Mac, for example, with no uh, volumes mounted to your host, which um, will help you with performance concerns that often come up because no, no uh, bound volume mounts, then you, you uh, have near native performance. Um, we've done a number of things to try to make it quick to bring up a Docker development environment because we're building these constantly as we get new projects. Um, and we have a tool called Rails Doc. Uh, that's like a command line tool uh, that's targeting Rails applications specifically. And um, it'll just kind of walk you through a few steps, asking you some questions, and then generate Docker configuration that um, is kind of our best our best development Docker configuration to date. Um, we've like, you know, started like everyone does with a configuration that works, but it has all sorts of like little issues and um, 
performance concerns and things. And this this Rails doc kind of wraps up everything that we've learned and makes it accessible to somebody that maybe has never used Docker before. So um, it's it's a work in progress, um, but it's available on GitHub. Um, I suppose it'll be it'll be linked in the uh, podcast description or something. Um, and yeah, give give it a try um, and you know give us some feedback. Excellent. Yeah, definitely. We'll include the links to that in the show notes. And do you have a book that's not a software-related book that you often find yourself recommending to peers? So not a software-related book. The one that comes to mind right now is one that I just read recently. It's a business book. Um, so this, this would apply to anybody that might fancy themselves as an entrepreneur. Um, it's called E-Myth. The uh, author's name escapes me right now, but I'll make sure it gets in the show notes. Uh, E-Myth, um, the reason that I, I really liked it versus other business books that I've read is it really focuses on the individual um, versus like, you know, a, uh, you know, t- follow these five steps to, to build your business or your product. Um, and it kind of it kind of helps you separate your roles as an entrepreneur, um, which are, you know, you, you've got to this entrepreneurial role, entrepreneurial role uh, but also you kind of fill a technical role usually. So you're a technician and maybe you're, you're managing um, and all of those those, uh, you know, personalities are at war within you. Um, it really helped me to understand myself. And I think anybody else that fancies themselves as an entrepreneur would, uh, would really get a lot from, from reading that book as well. Nice. I'll definitely include a link to that as well in the show notes. I read that a number of years ago and I should, I should revisit it again. I remember there was something about it that I, I've always taken away from it. It was like, there's, a, there's this goal of always trying to put yourself out of like setting up processes and procedures around a role and then kind of putting yourself out of a job by putting someone else in charge of that and taking over. And, and so I, I, I always kind of taken that and like that, that's the like one thing from that book that definitely stuck around over the years. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I'm going to need to revisit that one for sure. And where, where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Benjamin Wood. And you can learn more about Hint at Hint.io, correct? Yep, that's right. Oh, excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Benjamin. Thank you so much for talking shop. Thanks. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for, for having me and uh, talk to you again soon.